This week, we're going to be asking the, the next question in our summer sermon series on the church. Last two sessions we had together in this series, we asked the question, and this kind of set the, the foundation for us of what is the church. The second week, we asked the question, who is the church? This week, the question we are going to ask is, who leads the, the church? And this is actually going to be part one of two more messages in the next two weeks of explaining and unpacking who leads the church. And you're like, why do we need three weeks for that question? We can answer it now. We can all go home. And you probably could answer the question. Many of y'all are smart people and you understand the scriptures. And, but that would be no fun. So we're going to spend some time unpacking this easy question, right? Some would say that the church is led by the pastor. Some would say that the church is led by deacons or that the church is led by elders or some would say that the church is led by bishops. But is that always true? Is that true? Well, generally throughout church history, there have been four forms of church government throughout church history that have, the church has used and organized together. And the first is an Episcopalian form. The Episcopalian form comes from the Greek word episkopos, which is translated the word bishop. So when you understand bishop, you understand that that's episkopos, Episcopalian. The New Testament often uses this word to interchangeably sometimes to refer to the elder or pastor. Episcopos is where the Episcopalian churches get their, they get their names, they get their, their name, because over all their churches, they have bishops. They call their leaders bishops. And under one group of bishops is another group of bishops, and under that group is another group, and all the way to the top to the head bishop in charge. That's your Episcopalian congregations. And, and the bishops generally hold all the authority in the church. They hold all the authority, who's membership and who's not a member, who's a bishop, who's not, who's the, a pastor, who's speaking. They hold all the authority. In some denominations, they even hold all the authority when it comes to property. Lutheran churches are generally organized this way. Anglican churches, Methodist churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, they all have bishops that govern their congregations. Even Roman Catholics have bishops, and then they have what they call the Bishop of Rome. The second is Presbyterianism. This group also gets their name from a, another Greek word, for elder, presbyteros. Unlike Episcopalians, the Presbyterian church has the, have boards of elders. And each church has a board of elders, and they call them sessions. And above these sessions is a regional group of elders called presbyteries, and they're made up of the elders in this particular region. 
And these groups exercise authority over the region uh, that they are in. And then all the presbyteries are connected together to a general assembly. But each session in the church, which is their group of elders, they are the ones who have the authority of dealing with membership, discipline issues, teaching, etc. The presbyteries, however, they approve pastoral moves and changes, and they exercise oversight in the pressing matters of particular local churches if some kind of controversy or theological issue comes up and they look above the session. Uh, the PCA, Presbyterian Church US, uh, uh, of America, and the PCUSA essentially function the, this, this, this way. Third, there is elder rule. Each of these churches are all individual churches with no other authority outside of them over them. These churches are led by their elders, and these elders make every decision in leading them from choosing elders, membership, deacons, disciplinary issues, all come from the authority of the governing elders. I believe uh, Bible churches are organized and led this way, and also I believe Christian churches are as well. Some who might have, uh, have more experience there might be able to uh, answer that question. But they're, they're led this way. And fourth is congregationalism. In congregationalism, each church has its own, is its own final authority in making decisions. So the final authority does not come from this governing elders, but it comes from the congregation. In each of these congregations, they are independent from each other, and they are responsible for themselves. Many Baptist churches are organized this way. Unfortunately, Baptist churches that are congregational in nature nowadays, well, for a long time now, not just now, they have bad reputations in their congregationalism because these churches act more like the Wild West did than it does in a biblical, orderly way, as the scriptures would, would teach. The authority of the congregation, however, has become not about what Jesus has told them explicitly to do, but it has become about the individual member and for their own personal preferences. Many of us, you might have been a part of churches where many people believe that they should have the say in every little decision. Every little thing has to come through them. And if it doesn't, get ready for their grenades because they're coming. So this is some of the problems of, with congregationalism, unfortunately. People want to decide what color the carpet should be, so we just don't have carpet. Um, they decide how trim the trees are to be, or flowers, why we don't have flowers, etc. Unfortunately, many Baptist churches have become more known about their, known for their bickering and fighting over things like music and carpet and flowers and firing pastors that they don't like and people leaving, unfortunately. But, but this really isn't what congregationalism is. That's not what congregationalism is. Authority in every one of these uh, parts of government that we just explained can be abused. They can be abused in bishops. <laughs> Reformation, right? Elders can abuse authority. Pastors can abuse authority. Deacons can abuse authority. Congregations can abuse their authority. They can misuse God's good gifts 
like the authority that God has given to them in the church. But that doesn't mean we do away with all authority in the church like many are advocating. We are, if you're wondering what category maybe we fall under, we are in a, we are a congregationalismistic church. I added the istic on the, on the end there. We are a congregationalistic church. And in that, I'm going to unpack today what that means. However, if you are a church member, and if you're not a church member, we hope that you will become a church member either here or somewhere else, a faithful uh, biblical church that preaches the gospel. We want you to be a member of one of those churches. If you are a church member, we want you to know, we want you to believe, we want you to understand, and we want you to live under the weight that although the church has authority, the congregation has authority that has been given to it by Christ, that authority has only been given by Christ. That authority is derived. That for, therefore, as church members, that authority that we are to exercise, that's to be biblical, we do so under a greater authority. We do so under the authority of Christ. And that's why we're going to Colossians 1 this morning. So turn to Colossians 1, if you're not there already, and put your finger down to verse 15, and we're going to start reading at verse 15. And there should be some, should be some hearty amens in this passage. Okay? Uh, he, Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. What a wonderful passage on the supremacy and the preeminence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 is one of the clearest passages on Christology. You want to know who Christ is? Colossians 1, 15 through 20. You need more? Just read all of Hebrews or the Gospels. He is the invisible God, meaning Jesus Christ himself is the second part of the Trinity. He is God. He is the creator of all things. 
He is the creator of all things. From the smallest molecule, an atom, a cell, to the clouds, to the universe, to the stars, to the sun, to trees, to the earth, to every planet. He is the creator of all things. He has set in place and is sovereign throughout all time over rulers and authorities. Maybe, Christians, we should do more on pondering the joy and the contentment that that verse gives us than, one, and than worrying so much we do over such things. All things were created by him. Why? For him. Did he create it for you? In a way he did? He created it for him. For you to see, for you to enjoy, and for you to give glory to him for them. All things were created by him and for him. All creation, all of creation has been created by him for his glory and for his own rule, for his own dominion. Verse 17, Christ therefore is preeminent, which means he is before all things and everyone. If every ruler and authority has been put in place by him and he is before all things, then that means that Christ is before all rulers and all kings and all authorities. Whether they give glory to him or not, he is their king. He's preeminent. No one is greater. No one is more glorious than he. He is sovereign. He is the king, and he holds all things together. He holds all things together. He is our sustainer, our savior, the king of kings who is far above and greater than, than anything or anyone else. There is none greater. There is none far worthy or righteous or holy or more glorious than him. Again, we can just stop right here. And yet, according to Colossians 1, who does this glorious and mighty king lead? Who has this king reconciled to himself? Well, we see in it that in the fullness of time, he is reconciling all things and all persons to himself. But to whom has he made peace? Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Paul is expressing to us the metaphor of the body of Christ. And that's familiar to us. We know what that is. What is the body of Christ? It's the church. Who is the head of the body of Christ? Christ is the head of the body. He is our head. 
repeatedly. We see his spiritual rule over his church in Ephesians 1, 22, and, and chapter 4, 25, and 5, 23, and in Colossians 2, 19. His headship over his church points to the mystical union between Christ and his body, and he exercises his authority over the church through what? By what means does Christ exercise his authority over his church? Bingo, right here. The word of God. The scripture, through the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the Holy, of the Holy Writ. We submit as a church to our head. We submit ourselves as the church to the head of our church by submitting ourselves to the authority of his word. If a church does not submit itself to the authority of the scripture, then Christ is not their head. And if Christ is not their head, then they are not a church. Now I know I've said a lot, but a lot that I have said cannot be downplayed. It cannot be neglected. It cannot be ignored because answering this most basic question we started out with of who leads the church must be under the umbrella of our head. Before elders, before pastors, before deacons, before church members or bishops, Christ is our head. Brothers and sisters, there should be no doubt who leads this church. I hope that through our preaching, through our singing, through our meetings, through our ordinances together, through our small groups, what shines bright is that Christ is the head of this body. That Christ is the head of this church because this church is his church. But now, we have to look at how then does the head transfer leadership into the church? Who runs the show? Well, Christ runs the show. The authority is the word of God. He is our good shepherd, but yet under him, through his word, he has placed and given us offices within the church to lead his people. From Acts chapter 20, Titus 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, some, some passages we'll look over in the next couple weeks. He has given us the offices of elders, also uh, in scriptures known as the overseers or bishops or pastors, and then deacons. The deacon, the office of deacon is, we're not going to talk much about that today because it's not necessarily a position of authority. It's really not. That office is meant to meet particular needs in the church that require some organization and some leadership to meet those ongoing needs. The office of deacon is an office of a servant. And we're all called to deacon. In one way or another, we're all called to deacon. But if a church formally chooses to recognize an individual to meet ongoing needs, then therefore there is an office of deacon for them to hold. The office of deacon is not what we're going to focus on today. We're going to talk about elders some today, 
but mostly what we're going to talk about is what I believe is a third office. And that third office is church membership. We talked a lot about church membership a couple weeks ago, but now I want to give you a little bit more foundation of church membership in the roles of the church member. This is the congregation of congregationalism. Under Christ, he has established these offices of authority, and we're going to call it elder-led congregationalism. Elder-led congregationalism. Jesus is king, he's head of the church, but he has given elders to lead the congregation, and the congregation has the final say on crucial biblical matters. And we'll talk about what those matters are in a few minutes. The congregation isn't just a third wheel of leadership. There, there are some things that Jesus said that the church must do, that decisions that lie within the congregation, and these decisions can't be outsourced. The decisions of the church can't be outsourced to another group of elders or bishops or someone else. Elders exercise authority, yes, but their authority is to lead the church membership and knowing how to exercise their authority well. So when we talk about congregational authority, I'm going to take us all the way back again, like I did, I think, two weeks ago, back to Adam. Back. Adam was placed in the garden, created by Christ as God's representative in the garden. Adam was to be a priest king in the garden. He was to work the garden, cultivate the garden, but he was also to watch over the garden. Fail. He was to keep the garden consecrated. He was to subdue the earth by expanding the borders of the garden and through his dominion and work. This priest-king concept in the Old Testament then was given to Abraham and Moses and David and to the nation of Israel as a whole. But like Adam, they all failed in their obligation to the law and, and, and as God's representative. They've all failed. But yet we know throughout... The, the, the biblical history that a new covenant was to come. A new covenant which was established by Christ. So our head established this new covenant and Christ came as the true and better Adam who did not fail. He didn't fail in any of those ways. And this new covenant was coming to a, to a new people that, that he would create and he would create through the forgiveness of sin. And this new people would have the, the law now written on their hearts. And there would be this sort of Garden of Eden restoration that would take place in this new people. Ezekiel 36 and 37. Jesus came and he did the job that no one else could do. He was the perfect priest and he was the perfect king in his life and his death and in his resurrection through his blood 
the sacrifice of atonement for the forgiveness of sin, he would then unite this new people to himself, and he would be our federal head. He brought us, brothers and sisters, into his new covenant. Not by the sacrifices of animals or the blood of goats or bulls, but by the sacrifice of his own blood. We start here when we talk about congregationalism because we have to start at the gospel. Because church membership, brothers and sisters, is the outcome of the work of the gospel. We rise because he rose. We live because he lives. We are righteous because he is righteous. We are victorious because he is victorious. And we reign because he reigns. When united with him by faith alone, now that office as priest king becomes our office as the church. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal kingly priesthood, priest, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Together as the church, we embody that office of priest king together. And church membership is what makes that priest king position visible and practical. It works itself out in our membership. So let's look, let's look closely or closer at the scripture. Matthew chapter 16. You can go ahead and turn there if you like. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked the disciples one of the greatest questions. He asked one, this great question. He says, who do you say that I am? First he says, what do the people say I am? But really he's getting to, what do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this is what Jesus is looking for in the answer. He's looking for a what, and he's looking for a who. Right confession about Jesus. He's looking for what is the right confession about Jesus and who the right confessor is. What's the truth and who knows it? That's what he's asking in this question. And Peter answers that question miraculously, right? Seriously, I'm not just saying it because Peter's a lot of them, sometimes a moron like we are. But, I mean, miraculously, the Spirit reveals it to him. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you got it, brother. And even says, yeah, this came from the Spirit. But Jesus says something else to Peter. Peter confesses, and Jesus says this. He says, verse 18, Matthew 18, verse 18, or 16, excuse me. And I tell you, you are Peter. Yes, I am. And on this rock, Petros, Peter, I will build what? My church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Almighty fortress is our God. There it is. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Two things are going on here. First, it tells us that Jesus is going to build this church, his church, upon this rock. Christ builds his church. Soli Deo Gloria. He builds his church. He builds his church. He builds his church upon this rock. The rock is the confessor who is confessing the right confession. The confessor who is confessing the right confession. The what and the who. He's building his church upon that rock. Second, in order to build the church, he gives the keys to the kingdom for binding and loosing. Now, this isn't some keys to a new house. This isn't some keys to a new car. These are the keys of the kingdom. And what do these keys mean? What do they represent? They're a symbol of authority, right? If you have the keys, then you have the authority and ability to open the door of the house or the building. Or you have the, key, the, the, the authority to open the door to the car and drive. Peter is given these keys. He is given the authority over the what and the who. So Peter, you are going to be like a judge over the what and the who. Like a judge, he's, he doesn't write the law, he doesn't make the law, but he makes judgments based upon the law according to the testimony and the actions of the confessor. So, like what Jesus just did with Peter, Peter now is given that authority to judge what people say about Jesus to judge whether someone is a Christian or not. To be a Christian, you must have a right confession, and who gets to say whether or not that confession is right? It's the one who holds the keys. Now in Matthew 18, so maybe a page or two over, we saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus gives the keys now to a gathered people, to a group of people that he has called out, the, the ecclesia. We read it in chapter 16, the church. So no longer is it just Peter, but now it is the church who has this authority. And this authority, once again, is under the headship of Christ. And specifically in Matthew 18, it's to remove a brother, quote-unquote, who is living in unrepented sin. This is the process of church discipline. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The process is to confront, but hopefully, always in hope and prayer and desire for restoration, to see that brother or sister who is engaged in unrepentant, sinful attitudes or behavior to repent. That is always our hope. But Jesus says, if it goes to step three, the process must be taken to the church. It must go before the church because the church who holds the keys 
can hold the keys up to this brother and say, be warned, man. Repent of your sin. You're acting as an unbeliever. We don't want you to be an unbeliever. We want you to cherish and love Christ. Repent of your sin. And that is to be a stern warning, like a shot across the bow before the torpedo of excommunication comes. They hold the keys. And that's precisely the same authority that Jesus gave to Peter earlier. And he says the same language, to bind and to loosen. Here's the thing. Wherever we agree, and it says this here in Matthew 18, look at that passage again, you can see it. At the very end, Jesus gives us amazing words of encouragement. Wherever we agree and we gather together in the role as priest king, and we agree in the who and the what, the head of the body, Jesus is with us. Do you see that there? That he is with us. By the word of God, it tells us, according to and by the word of God, that he is with us. So in the case of one who is unrepentant of their sin, who is the final court of authority in this world for them? In this world. Who is called upon to execute judgment upon a person to call them to repentance? Is it the elders? Is it a bishop? Is it deacons? Is it some other church committee? Is it culture? Does culture determine how we discipline or not? No, it's the church according to the scriptures and by the scriptures. The two or three that are gathered to bind and to loose. This is the authority that Jesus gives his church to guard the what and the who of the gospel. Who is going to represent God and, on, and God in heaven here and on earth? It's the church. And the church's responsibility is to analyze and to know each person that comes in to join and to be a part of this congregation. And we do that through biblical church membership, discipline, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Now, he is not saying that the church has the power to make a Christian. We don't make Christians. A Christian is only made by the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. And when they believe by faith, the authority of the church is only to recognize that work. We recognize that work. And when we recognize that work, it is our job to bring them in bring them in. The authority of the church is, is, is to recognize the work of God in someone's life through their profession and through their life and to bring them in. Remember the illustration we used two weeks ago from the book Church Membership. The church is like an embassy in a foreign land. When a citizen needs a passport, where do they go? They go to the embassy. And the embassy looks at the person, they take all the, the documentation that they have, and they look at the person, and they look at their pictures, and they they determine what? If they're a citizen or not. And if they're a citizen, they issue them a passport. The embassy doesn't make them citizens, but it does determine who is a citizen and gives them the passport. That's the role of the church. It doesn't make citizens of heaven. 
but we recognize them publicly. And to the world, we tell, this is a Christian. This is one who represents Christ. So let me clarify further two points of this authority that the church, is, that the church exercised. First, the church has the authority to identify and preserve the gospel message. This is the what. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's saying this church, these churches in Galatia, maybe one in particular, is receiving a false gospel message. And they're believing it. And they're just going head over heels following these, these false teachers. And Paul is astonished that they are receiving this false gospel so openly, so willingly. And Paul is sort of asking the question, why aren't you preserving the gospel that was given to you? Because who is responsible for preserving the gospel message? Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to the church, specifically churches here in Galatia. The church has the responsibility to preserve the gospel. The gospel is to be preserved preserved by the church members, not by the elders and not by bishops primarily. It does not matter who comes to you and preaches. If they come and they preach a different gospel than what is revealed in the scripture, then the church is not to receive the message. In fact, they're to kick them out. The boot. Most of the time when churches go astray theologically and then ethically and then morally, it is because of pastors. But if the church is not preserving the gospel, then they are going to embrace their heresy that is preached from the pulpit or music stand. And then before they know it, sin is proclaimed as good with little to no opposition. In the early 20th century, when liberalism struck the SBC, it spread predominantly first through the seminaries. And that infected many of the, the upcoming pastors and, and missionaries and, and several. But there were faithful churches that stood up. There were some that weren't, that didn't. We call them CBF. And they didn't stand. But there were some faithful churches that stood up and said, this isn't the gospel. This guy's a heretic. Anathema. One of those churches we were a member of in Louisville, my wife and I, Ninth and O Baptist Church. And they were one of the churches instrumental in looking at the seminary in Louisville and saying, what is this garbage? 
And they stood and they went to the convention and made a ruckus at every time they could so that there would be a restoration. Churches won out and seminaries returned. So your job as the church is to be so faithful to the gospel that if you hear another gospel being proclaimed, you are to get rid of it, even if it's me. And remove any other elder who preaches a different gospel. As priest king, this is you preserving the garden, preserving the what of the gospel message. Second, the church has the authority and responsibility to identify to who belongs among the community of believers, and we do that regularly through baptism and Lord's Supper. And this is the who of the gospel. As we have said, if someone is engaged in sin, an unrepentant sin, then we can, as the church, no longer believe their original confession of faith. And then it is the church's job to take away their passport and to remove them from membership, to excommune from them from no longer taking part of the Lord's table because they are acting as an unbeliever. So we believe that they're an unbeliever. That's not unkind, that's not unhateful, but it's actually loving them in the truth for their benefit because we want them to repent. But also for the benefit and the purity of the gospel and the church. Church discipline is protecting the what and the who. But see, we always want to look at the keys as, as being the, 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 the loosening, the letting, the letting go. These keys are not just the authority to discipline someone, but, but even more so. And what we hope to see more and more in our own congregation is to affirm Christians in their church membership, to bind those who believe the what and the who. We do this through baptism. For those who have been in membership for a while, I have to ask, what has been the greatest and most joyful moments in the history of this church. I think maybe one day we should have a special Sunday evening and just come together and maybe just ask that question and just let us fellowship with that question. What is the greatest moments we've seen? I would say that it would hard to come up with anything better than we heard the testimonies of those who have joined the body of Christ. And then when we in membership meeting affirm together in a hearty amen into membership. Each of you, I remember when you gave your testimony. Dick and Debbie are first in our church, little church plant to join our church. I remember it. And I remember how glorious it was to see Christ building his church, but also encouraging us and affirming us and how we are not only growing, but affirming what Christ has given us the authority to do as the church, and then to exercise that. So encouraging. And then all the ones since then. For each of us to be involved in this Christ-given process to the church affirms what? It affirms your identity, that you're not just one of us, but you are in Christ. You're in him, man. You're in him. 
And that affirms us as the church that we're in union with who? In union with our elders? No! Well, you are sort of, but you're in union with Christ. But you're in union with Christ, who is our head, and we're taking the keys that he has given to us, and we're using them responsibly and biblically, appropriately, with love and compassion. We are congregational because we believe and we see from the word of God that Jesus wants the church to have this authority. And brothers and sisters, the church cannot hand this important work off to someone else and not be unfaith and, and be unfaithful to what Jesus has called them to do. Congregational authority, but there is also, as the scripture tells us, the authority with the elders. This is the elder-led of elder-led congregationalism. I'm going to be very brief here because in the next two weeks we're going to talk about elders, particularly the qualifications and their roles and functions. But we'll touch a little bit of that this morning. The elders are men who are called by God who meet the biblical qualifications of eldership. Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And there are those who have been recognized by the church and set apart by the church to lead the church. And why are they set apart to lead the church? So that the church can then faithfully execute their role and authority given to them by their head. The elders are given authority by Scripture to lead the body of Christ so that the church will be led faithfully to execute their role to do the things we have already discussed. Elders are to do this by their teaching, through the instruction and the equipping of the church with the word of God to look, to believe, and to behold, and to delight in Jesus Christ. Not only are elders to have an understanding of the scripture, they must also be able to teach and have a mature understanding to rightly apply the word of God to the church. Elders lead the church by and with the authority of the head of the church through his word. They protect the church from false teaching. But once again, the church has the role of the what to test what the elders are teaching. Also, the elders are to lead the church by example. This is why all the qualifications, if you've read those passages that we mentioned earlier, all these qualifications exist. And, and I think the one that shines the most is that elders are to be above reproach. That doesn't mean they can't be accused. It means that their lives are above reproach. Elders are not perfect people, but our lives should be an example to you. The authority of the elders is to lead the church through the teaching of the word, not by domineering or by force, 1 Peter chapter 5. We, are, we teach, we example, we lead, and we make decisions, again, so that church members are equipped to do what Jesus has told you to do, to preserve the what and the who. If we are not doing that, then we are failing as 
elders. So Jesus leads his church. He is our head, and he has given authority to the congregation, and he has called elders to lead the church in doing the work of the priest king. That's elder-led congregationalism in a 35-minute, 40-minute nutshell. So you have these two parts of the church that exercise authority, the congregation taking responsibility for other church members to preserve the message, and the who, the confessor, and the elders who are called by God to be gifts to the church, leading in the teaching of the word of God and, and examples in the spiritual direction of the church and so on. But let me give you a few takeaways this morning. Number one, you must know the gospel, especially if you are a church member. You must know the gospel. Be saturated with the gospel, not only for your own soul, but for the life and the health of your church and for the body of Christ. Do you know the gospel? Can you say and tell someone the the basics of the gospel. I was delighted last night to be with Brother Patrick and hearing Patrick explain the gospel to a person at the ice cream place we went to. I was delighted to hear. There's a brother who is, knows the gospel and even in such a way to share the gospel with someone. How can we hold the keys if we don't know the gospel? How can we hold the keys if we don't know the gospel or if we're not growing in it? We must study it. We must grow in it. We must apply the gospel. And yes, that is the, certainly the role of the elders, to so always be guiding and leading. As we read this morning in Psalm 23, leading us to still waters and green pastures with God's word. Second, pursue the spiritual good of other members. Or to put it another way, keep watch over your church as the good shepherd does. Keep it consecrated to God just as Adam was called to do so in the garden. That we would cultivate, that we would irrigate and fertilize and even weed this garden. Members of Sovereign Grace Church, we have this responsibility because we have been given the authority, we have been given the keys by Jesus himself. Don't pass that off to someone else. It's your role. It's your role to, to love and care for your, your brother and for your sister, to pray for them to correct when they are needed, to press in when it feels better just to stand back. I hope you know how much we need each other. I hope you understand that. And that Christ has united us together in him, that we would be united together. Number three, this is going to sound like a no-brainer, but go to church. You simply cannot be responsible in your role as a church member with the keys in your pocket if you're not in church. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up, other to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We go to church. We go to gather with the church. Number four, don't miss the ordinances and members' meetings if all possible. We take the Lord's Supper every month on the last Sunday of every month. And I say don't miss it because it's when the church reaffirms together the what we believe and who believes it. It's the ongoing reminder and ceremony as we come together as a family. Baptism is the symbol of our new birth, isn't it? Baptism is the symbol of our, of our new birth. And the Lord's Supper is the birthday party every month. We just do it all together. The church exercises its authority in the ordinances. And when we have members' meetings, we have very few, one or two a year. That's when we are doing the binding and loosening as members. Do not miss those times to exercise the role that Christ has given you as a church member. Lastly, straight out of our covenant, we are to submit to the elders of the church and diligently strive for unity and peace within the church because they are God's gift to us for equipping and maturity to be a better church, to be better church members. So we are to pray. Pray for each other. Pray for your elders. Pray for the ministries and members and mission and elders and leadership and all the activities of Sovereign Grace Church. Brothers and sisters, I personally have never heard a sermon on congregationalism before, a podcast or something like that. And I never knew how sweet it could be. Not the sermon, but congregationalism could be. I always thought by my experience that I've seen in churches is that this direct democracy of uh, in church business meetings and government of a pastor and a, a board of deacons and committees was just how it was going to be. And I, going into ministry, was just going to have to live with it and do my best to survive. But that is not the case. Over the past five and a half years, I have personally experienced through you and through the work of God's word and the Holy Spirit how much the church is a gift and a blessing. Since the beginning, the, since the, beginning, the embrace of biblical truth and to be transformed by the Bible has, has brought me, not just as a pastor and elder and teaching pastor, but has brought me freedom in life as a Christian and as a church member. That what we experience as a church isn't just carnal civility. We're not just getting along to get along. It's not just something we just put on a face and we just get along because we agree to disagree. But it is a joyful, gospel-centered unity that only can be found in the body of Christ when Christ is our head. And that's it. And maybe that's been the problem all along, right? Christ isn't the head. 
I see it every time I am with you. Whether you come to my house or I go to your house, or you come here or we meet at the coffee shop or we go fishing or whatever it is. And I hope, I pray, I, I hope that you do too. And, and, and those who are not church members here, again, this is a not just say, come join us. Absolutely, we would love for you to join us. But we want you to be a church member somewhere that is biblical, faithful to God's word, that exercises the keys correctly over your life so that you too would enjoy what we enjoy. I am impacted greatly when we take the Lord's Supper each month. I truly missed it last week. I'm greatly impacted by our fellowship and our conversations and our singing together, our Bible studies, our book studies. And I pray the same for you, that now, even in this small fellowship, you will see the gift and the responsibility we have to listen to the scriptures and to be obedient to our glorious, preeminent, sovereign King, who is our head, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, O oh God, how it instructs us, even in how we are to be the church, and how we are to lead the church, and who leads the church. Lord, we confess that we are all still growing in these things. We confess, Lord, that sometimes we, we shrink back from our responsibility to love and care for one another in these ways. But Lord, even now, we recommit ourselves to each other and to you, our head. Lord, we pray in all things that we would follow our head. We pray, O oh God, that the, your word would be our authority in all things, in all ways, in all places. We pray, God, we would not try to usurp that authority with our own sinful hearts and actions, by our own preconceived ideas or our own agendas, but we would humbly follow our Savior. And Lord, would you guide our response time this morning and that it would be glorifying and edifying to one another as we respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.